Hello and welcome to the Wild Truth Chase podcast. My name is Nicholas Schaefer. This is season six, How I Try to Figure Things Out, and episode eight, Causal Inference. Let's talk about where we are so far in the season. We're interested in studying some particular phenomena. This phenomenon could be at one of many different levels of description that we described before, from the microscopic to the cosmic. Many of the phenomena that we're naturally interested in are in the messy middle, on the spatial and temporal timescales that are natural for humans. On this level, there are a few clean-cut and deterministic theories, like classical mechanics, that tend to work very well. So we're setting out to make a quantitative model of whatever phenomenon we're interested in. In other words, we're going to do a theory of that phenomenon. We've seen that we have very accurate theories for the most basic known constituents of the universe, but that understanding our phenomenon of interest using these kinds of theories has insurmountable challenges. So we're going to have to devise a theory on our own. We start by defining the model that involves defining the types of objects that are going to be fundamental and how they're going to be related to each other. Then we're going to collect some data or observations. Once we have our data, where should we turn? One obvious answer might be statistics. It seems like statistics is the most general discipline when it comes to extracting meaning from data. Alas, as we've seen, statistics, and in particular orthodox statistics, has become rotten in its pursuit of objectivity. How do we fix these shortcomings of orthodox statistics as a methodology for data analysis? As we've seen, we first need to repair the notion of probability and decouple it from the notion of frequency. Probability is instead best understood as a measure of a belief in a proposition. We then need to supplement our statistical machinery with data-generating processes, which are a description, or our best guess, about the process that created the data that we have observed. This is the same as our quantitative model, or our theory of the phenomenon. It contains both things that we are able to observe and things that we cannot observe, but typically are the things we care the most about. With these two pieces in place, both the probabilities and the data-generating processes, we can perform inferences of our unobserved quantities of interest. If we were satisfied with simply being able to predict, but not necessarily understand, we can ask a machine to learn a proxy for our data-generating process, like we discussed last week. This involves collecting lots of examples of inputs and outputs, and then training a function to describe the data generating process that takes the inputs and turns them into the outputs. This does in general involve injecting a little bit of an inductive bias by specifying a class of solutions that the solution can take. We then turn the machine learning crank to generate a fully specified data generating process such that it can be used to make predictions. A prediction is the generation of an output of the function given a new input that was not seen previously in the training data. These methodologies collectively provide extremely general frameworks for understanding, or at least predicting. But what if we are not only interested in understanding, but also doing? 
Making this transition from understanding to doing is our subject today, namely causal inference. We'll see that in the process of making this jump, our understanding will also be substantially improved. Taking an example that came up towards the beginning of the season, what if we wanted to ask the question, how should we price a ticket to maximize revenue? There are two subtly different questions here. One question is, what are the prices of tickets for particular types of games? That's an observational question. The question that we're actually asking, though, is what will happen if I set a particular price for a ticket? Let's take another analogy, and let's talk about a fish tank. This will help us to understand the difference between seeing and doing. When we're seeing, we're simply observing a system without disturbing it. And when we're doing, we're changing something about the system. So imagine that you're observing a fish tank using a camera that's pointed at one side of the fish tank. You're interested in making predictions about the system, like when a particular fish will swim under the bridge. There are dynamics inside of the fish tank that determine when that particular fish will swim under the bridge, some of which you can observe and some of which you cannot observe given your limited vantage point. These dynamics produce correlations or associations that you can leverage when making your predictions. You could even set up some kind of machine learning scheme that watches many hours of video of the tank and produces a machine learning model. And that machine learning model could then be used to make the predictions about the system. You might eventually become bored with this game and decide that you want to know what would happen if you actually change something about the system. Let's say you rearrange the items in the tank, or introduce a new fish, or move one fish from one part of the tank to another. In general, the model that you built to make the predictions, no matter how accurate it is, for the undisturbed system, will prove inadequate for making predictions about what will happen once you intervene on the system like this. To make accurate predictions about what happens when you intervene, you need a reasonably complete and accurate model of the data generating process that includes causal relationships. In general, modeling black box systems with associational machine learning models will not suffice if you have choices where you can intervene on the system. In other words, you should not expect that model that works well for the undisturbed system to continue to hold once you intervene. To take us through the rest of the episode, I'm going to use as a framework The Book of Why by Judea Pearl. Judea Pearl is an engineer turned computer scientist, and in the 1980s, he created something called Bayesian networks, which are essentially an efficient methodology for doing Bayesian inference, which we discussed several episodes ago. The main point of his book is that science must come before statistics, as we heard from Richard McElreath. He expresses this as mind over data. There are lots of questions you simply cannot answer, as we've seen with the fish tank, without a model of the data generating process. And the validity of the conclusions that you answer with the model will in general depend on the validity of that model. Early on in the book, he provides an organizing framework for both his book and for his work more broadly, and it's known as the ladder of causation. On rung one, the lowest rung of the ladder, there is association. And here we're asking questions like, what if I see? All actual observational data is rung one data. So it's an important rung of the ladder. And Pearl and his colleagues have 
come up with practical algorithms that allow us to answer questions from higher rungs of the ladder using rung one data and a causal model of the world. It's important to note that these questions cannot be answered using rung one data alone. You need both the data and a model of the data generating process. On rung two of the ladder, there are questions like, what if I do? And those are the kinds of interventions that I mentioned. It might seem like that's all the kinds of questions that there are. What if I see and what if I do? But on rung three of the ladder, which is counterfactuals, you can ask questions that involve imagination. What if I had done something? As with all good books, there are heroes and villains. One hero of the book is named Sewell Wright. And he was an early pioneer in the use of causal models and applied it, among all problems, to studying guinea pig coat patterns. A villain of the book is one that should be familiar to listeners of this podcast, and that's none other than Ronald Fisher, who insisted on using so-called model-free analyses of the data in his pursuit of objectivity. Another villain of the book is less personal, but no less important, and that is confounding. Confounding occurs when a third, often unobserved variable influences both the observed cause and effect, and thereby distorts the relationship between the two. A major practical lesson of the book is that when it comes to controlling for things in statistical studies, more is not strictly better. What you should control for depends on the question that you're asking and, crucially, the causal structure of the data generating process. Controlling for too many variables can be just as problematic as controlling for too few. The book amounts to another attack on orthodox statistics, but from a slightly different angle. In his book, Bernoulli's Fallacy, Aubrey Clayton argued that the main problem with orthodox statistics is that it commits Bernoulli's fallacy, which is confusing the probability of a hypothesis given the data, which is what we're actually interested in, with the probability of the data given the hypothesis, which is easier to compute. Ronald Fisher was trying to maintain his objectivity by avoiding the use of a prior, which is a necessary part of Bayes' theorem. Judea Pearl argues that the main problem with orthodox statistics is that it tries to claim that all answers are in the data itself. In other words, it's foolish to try to maintain objectivity by adopting a model-free approach. This objection also applies in slightly modified form to most of today's associational machine learning. Pearl starts the book by discussing Bayesian networks, which were his main contribution to the field of Bayesian inference and deal with rung one data alone. They do deal with the data in a rigorous and efficient way that's consistent with Bayes' theorem and does not commit Bernoulli's fallacy that Aubrey Clayton discussed in his book. He devotes just a single chapter to this, but does not emphasize it overall in the book because, from his point of view, it's still missing a key ingredient, namely causality. To go from Bayesian networks to truly causal models, Pearl introduces so-called structural causal models. In a quantitative model, we write down a description of how our observed data is generated, and that includes unobserved quantities that you want to make inferences about, or that we're going to intervene on. On rung two of the ladder, we have interventions. 
Let's imagine that you have some observational data and you have a causal model of the data generating process for that observational data. You now want to ask a question about what would happen if you change something about the system. The basic structure of your causal model is expressed in terms of a graph with nodes and arrows. We have now heard that controlling for too many variables can be just as bad as controlling for too few. But how do we decide which to control for or even if the question can be answered at all given the data and the data generating process that we have. It's by no means guaranteed that all interventional questions can be answered if we only observe a subset of the variables in our causal model. This is exactly where the techniques developed by Judea Pearl and his colleagues allow us to sometimes take rung two questions, what would happen if I intervene on the system in some way, and answer them with rung one data, how often do I see such and such a thing occur? When they do not enable us to answer those particular types of questions, they tell us that answering those questions, strictly speaking, can be impossible. However, even when it's not possible to answer the question exactly, you can sometimes gain useful information about, about bounds on the influence of various variables in your data generating process. An example that he gives in the book is the same example that was given by Aubrey Clayton in Bernoulli's fallacy, namely Ronald Fisher arguing that we could not conclude from the data that smoking caused lung cancer. His argument was that a smoking gene could be an unobserved confounder of both smoking and cancer, and that the gene would cause people both to smoke and would cause them to be predisposed to de the development of lung cancer. Without being able to observe the smoking gene directly, given that this was well before the era of widespread and inexpensive genetic sequencing, we cannot completely rule out this possibility. We can, however, put some bounds on how large the effect would have to be and then judge the result on the basis of our scientific knowledge. Not surprisingly, one such analysis showed that the effect would need to be implausibly large to account for the observed association between smoking and lung cancer. Moving up to rung three on the ladder of causation, we have counterfactuals. In this case, you have observed some data and you want to ask a question, what would have happened if some aspect of the system had been different than it was, in fact? This raises what some people refer to as the fundamental problem causal inference, which is that you only ever observe one particular outcome which corresponds to the factual world. From this point of view, causal inference is a missing data problem. The missing data are the observations in the counterfactual world. Pearl objects to calling this fundamental problem of causal inference because it puts the focus back on the data and not on the data generating process, which is his focus. The example that he uses to illustrate this is trying to understand what someone's salary would have been if they had pursued more education. An overly simple approach to this problem, that of matching, which means finding someone who is similar to you in every way except that they, for example, have more education, fails. One look at the data generating process shows why this is not a sound approach. Education certainly directly influences salary, but education also influences experience because if you take more time to get education, then you necessarily reduce the amount of experience that you have. Here, Pearl's strength shines through yet again in that he takes a seemingly esoteric problem and comes up with practical algorithms for answering these types of questions. 
The general outline of the algorithm for answering the counterfactual questions is as follows. It involves three steps. One is abduction, the next is action, and the final is prediction. During the abduction step, you can use real data plus your causal model to determine the values of the unobserved influences in your particular case. Using the above example, this would include anything other than education and experience that goes into determining salary. Once you have abducted the unobserved values for the particular case, you can then take the action step, which is modifying the causal model to set the value of education to its counterfactual value. And in the final step, there's prediction, which is when you use the modified causal model along with the values of the unobserved variables particular to you that you determined in step one to calculate the value of the quantity of interest in this counterfactual scenario, which would be salary in this case. Let's recap what we've discussed. We now have tools to build a model of a system. And depending on what kind of model we build, we can use the model either to make predictions, like in the case of machine learning, to understand what's happening in the case of Bayesian inference, or even to intervene and ask what-if questions, which are possible with the structural causal models of Perl. One aspect that we haven't quite considered yet is the question, what should I do? Let's say you have a structural model and know what will happen if you take certain actions. In other words, you make interventions on the system. How should you then decide between those actions? This final step is the realm of decision theory, which will likely be the subject of one or more future episodes. As of now, I'm still undecided regarding what the topic will be next week. You'll just have to tune in to find out. Thanks as always for joining me, and I'll see you next week. 